I direct your attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we have been reminded this morning of your love. Had it not been for your love, Lord, we would not be saved. Had it not been for your love, O oh Lord, Jesus would not have gone to Calvary. Had it not been for your love, Lord, we would have no hope of a glorious future. So we recognize that all that we are, all that we will ever be, is because of your great love. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear you. That you would incline our hearts to love you and transform our thinking by the power of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Mediator. I pray these things. Amen. Every one of us have expectations. Coming this morning, you had expectations of what may or may not take place. You go out to eat. You have expectations. You go to a great restaurant. Your expectations are high. You go to other places. Maybe not so high. We all have expectations. And those expectations will impact the way that we feel about things. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times. He wrote about this very thing. He said that when he travels and at times when he's able to stay at a five-star luxury hotel, he finds something very interesting happening to his spirit. He says that even though he is staying in the lap of luxury, he finds himself angry often. Why did they have to put an outlet here? Does this place think it's so fancy it can't have a coffee maker in the room? Why do I have to wait so long for the valet to come? I know, it's not our problem, but yet... He said it makes him feel angry. But what he's found is this. When he stays at places that are not as fancy, he's often happier. He said that he finds out that his expectations are not as high, so it's like, hey, 
They have a coffee pot and an iron in the room. Woo! And he says, instead of frustration and anger, there's actually joy. Our expectations impact us. And when we come to this passage, we find out about expectations. Because often we only think of the expectations we have without thinking of, one, what does the Lord expect from us? Second, what expectations do we have of Jesus? Expectations that may keep us from really walking with him. Then how does Jesus transform what we expect? When we start in this text in verses 43, really through verse 47, we see that God does expect things of his followers. God has expectations of you, Christian. And John is very clear from the very first chapter of his gospel that one of the key expectations that God has of a follower of Jesus Christ is this. A Christian will be about bringing people to Jesus. To say you are a follower of Jesus means that you will actively work to bring people to Jesus. Now the reason I say that is that in this first chapter alone there are three examples, three models of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and every one of them involves pointing people to Jesus Christ. It starts with John the Baptist. John sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, and then he directs his followers to follow Jesus. The second example is found in the passage we read last week of Andrew. Andrew follows Jesus, and what's the very first thing that Andrew does? He goes and he finds his brother, Simon Peter, and he brings Simon Peter to Jesus. And in this passage, we see that Philip is found by Jesus, and what's the very first thing that Philip does? He goes and he finds Nathaniel, and he brings Nathaniel so Nathaniel can follow Jesus. Do you see the pattern? The model before us is this. God expects followers of Jesus to be about bringing people to Jesus. Now, I say that knowing that that can be a very daunting task. The minute you and I make a commitment to evangelize, we are entering into spiritual warfare. Our enemy does not want any believer to share the good news of the gospel. So the moment you take this seriously... Satan is going to fight against you through, through circumstances, through fears to keep you from witnessing. He will engage you with fears. What are you going to say? He will engage you with the fear. What will people think of you? He will play on your pride. What if they ask a question you can't answer? And so what happens is our heart wants to witness, but fear gets the best of us. So we become afraid to help people point, be pointed toward Jesus. So this morning I want to challenge the way you think about evangelism. You see, often we think about evangelism as, evangelism as something that, okay, okay, I've got to do it, I've got to do it, I've got to do it, I've got to go out there, I've got to do it, I can do it, I can do it. And so we end up engaging in this pep talk. But I want you to think about evangelism like this. I want you to think about evangelism like t-ball. Now I have not, nor have I ever been a baseball player. I could not hit the ball, I could not throw straight, and I could not run fast. It kind of mitigated against being a baseball player. However, I did have a stellar career as a t-ball player. Played first base for the Indians. I can remember going out when I was assigned to first base, and because I was so obsessive compulsive and the coach told me where to stand, I drew an X, and I stood on the X near first base until the coach told me I actually had to move and stand on the base, which really blew my world at that point. But I like t-ball. You have a T, you have a ball. 
You set the ball on the tee, and then you swing. You may not make contact, but the ball's there. It's much easier than somebody throwing the ball at you or towards you, whatever the case may be. What if we think about evangelism as something that God sets up like setting a ball on a tee? I want you to look at this text closely because all throughout it we see Jesus setting things up. Look at the very first verse, verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now keep in mind, nothing in the scripture is just on a whim. I don't think Jesus was sitting around thinking, you know, what are we going to do today? Hey, I know, let's go to Galilee. One, he was already in Galilee. So the very fact that John points this out is amazing. Because it's emphasizing the fact that where Jesus begins his ministry is not the place you and I would have thought to have begun ministry. And this is why. Israel was divided into three provinces or counties. There was Judah in the south. Judah was the place to be. It was the New York City and the Washington, D.C. all rolled up into one. It was the place where things were happening and where the action was to be found. If you want to start a ministry, that's where you go. You go to Jerusalem. Then you had Samaria. Nobody went to Samaria. People avoided Samaria. And then on top of that is Galilee. And Galilee was to Israel what Alaska is to the United States. It's there, but often you really just don't think about it. And you sure don't end up there by accident. If you want to go there, you go there on purpose. So when Jesus says he decides to go to Galilee, there is a purpose that he is going to the area that is considered the fringe frontier of Israel. And we find out that purpose next because look at the words. He found Philip. Isn't that interesting? He found him. Now the word for found there is not like he's walking along a beach and finds a wristwatch in the sand. It's not shocking like, oh, I wouldn't even look at that. Look what I found. Who knew? No, no. This is intense. This is purposeful. This is Jesus saying, I found Philip. Why did he find Philip? He was looking for Philip. You see, Jesus is in control of this all the way. And even in what he utters next, he says to him, follow me. Now, this shattered the social conventions of the time because a rabbi did not solicit followers. A rabbi would not put up a sign that said, wanted, wanted, followers, call this number. A rabbi did not recruit people to follow him. No, it was the other way around. It was the disciple that would go to the rabbi and say, would you allow me to follow you? Would you allow me to learn to you? learn from you and here is Jesus and what does Jesus do he breaks that social convention and speaks with authority Philip follow me and the interesting thing is that's exactly what Philip does God is in control of this situation from the get-go and then he gives us a little background Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter so he's showing this connection where Jesus is working on the fringe of the of the Jerusalem area or the fringe of Israel to bring about his disciples and what does Philip do he finds Nathaniel. See the pattern? Jesus is in control. So did Philip finding Nathaniel take Jesus by surprise? No, because we see later on that Jesus knew exactly who Nathaniel was. This is Jesus at work. So what I encourage you to do is this. When it comes to evangelism, do two things. Trust God to bring about the right opportunity at the right time and the right place. And then just tell. It's like T-ball. Jesus is at work. He is at work in the circumstances. He will open and he will close doors. That may shock some of you to think of Jesus closing a door. But not every time is the right time to tell. 
There needs to be a sensitivity whenever we, we go to witness. And the interesting thing is this. Notice how Philip connects with Nathaniel. Verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. He made a connection point with Nathaniel. And even when Nathaniel raises an objection, what does Philip do? He keeps focused on Jesus. Come and see. Don't get sidetracked whenever you go to evangelize. Keep focused on Jesus. My father passed away in November of 2012. Loved my dad. Had great respect for him. One of the great blessings in that time of grief as we mourned his passing was hearing the testimony of so many people that came through the receiving line to say that my dad was a real soul winner. Dad was an intelligent man. He was a civil engineer. One person said, Mark, the thing that amazed me about your dad is he could talk with anyone. I've seen him have conversation with doctors and then turn around and have a conversation with a ditch digger. He could talk to about anyone. And I said, yeah, that's, that's dad. He knew how to shoot the bull. He could do that. Then he said, but no, your dad knew how to talk to people about Jesus. And then he began to tell me a story of one time he had gone out witnessing with my dad. They went to the person who had the reputation in the Clearwater community for being just rough. Which, come to think of it, a lot of people in that community had the reputation for being rough. But this person was angry toward the church. Something had happened years ago that had turned this man off of the church. And you've, you've met them. They're just angry. Don't talk to me about church because their heart has been wounded. And dad begins sharing the gospel. And immediately when dad finished the gospel presentation, that man began talking about all the negatives of that church. And then he said, ah, you couldn't pay me enough to go to that church. This man said, Mark, I'll never forget what your dad said next. Your dad looked at him and he said, sir, I wouldn't give you a dime to go to that church. But I would crawl on my hands and knees through the mud to lead you to Jesus. Can we talk about Jesus? My dad was not perfect, but what he was doing was what Philip did. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. God expects us as followers of Jesus to live lives that, that, that live in action and live by telling, saying, come to Jesus, come and see now, even with that expectation, when we begin to engage in that, there are people that will respond based on their expectations of Jesus. In fact, we find Nathaniel as a skeptic. And he utters an expectation that is a barrier to him following Jesus. Look, if you will, closely at verse 46. Nathaniel says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, it's debated as to what he meant. Some feel like it's because Bethsaida and Nazareth had a friendly and a not-so-friendly rivalry. Both were fishing towns located on the Sea of Capernaum, about five miles, or Sea of Galilee, about five miles apart. And it's believed they were rivals with one another, didn't like each other. It's like high school teams that disliked each other, and your whole reason for living was to beat that other team. As long as Bethsaida was better than Nazareth, everything was good. So can anything good come out of Nazareth? The other question is this. Philip, you just said that you think he's the Messiah. Do you really think the Messiah is coming out of Nazareth? Nazareth has a population of less than 300 people. You really think the Messiah is coming from there? You see, Nathaniel had his expectations as to who and what the Messiah would be like. 
So the first thing he says is, no. How could that be? You and I will meet people that have expectations of what they think Christianity is like. And they will throw those expectations up as barriers to justify unbelief. Now, I cannot deal with all of the potential things someone may say, but I just want to address two this morning. There are those who will say, well, I'm, I can't believe in Christianity because Christianity is so exclusive. In other words, Christianity draws a border and it keeps people out. And they'll say, I want a religion. I believe there needs to be a religion that is all-inclusive, that says, everyone come. Everyone come, no matter who you are. You don't have to change. You come as you are. And so since they believe that Christianity is exclusive only for a certain few, they refuse to believe. Tim Keller answers this in his book, Reasons for God. In your response to that person, and some of you today may have that same misgiving, Christianity is narrow, it's a straitjacket. Would you consider this? Every community that gathers around a person or a purpose draws boundaries. Every community does. Let's take in our culture what's considered to be one of the most open communities there is, the LGBTQT community. Imagine for a moment that there is a member of a board of a, of a community group for the LBGQT. And that board member says, I've had a religious conversion. I think homosexuality is wrong. I, I, I believe it's wrong, but I'm going to stay on the board. Do you think the other board members would look and say, yeah, that's good. Even though you no longer believe it's morally acceptable, you can stay on the board. No. They would say that belief is no longer in line with what our community holds. You cannot be on the board. The same would hold true for a, an evangelical community that takes a stand against homosexuality. If a member of that board said, well, I th I've come to the conclusion that we ought to say it's okay, that person would be asked to step off the board. Every community that focuses upon a person or a purpose draws boundaries. Christianity says that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That's a boundary. There's no other way. But here's the unique thing about Christianity. Christianity says it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what your skin color is, what money you have or don't have, you can believe. You can come. It's open to all who would believe. Furthermore, Christianity is unique from any other religion in the world because guess what Christianity teaches? How you and I should respond to those who are against it. Love them. Love your enemies. Even those who would, would mock you and say that can't be true. So you see, there are many who would not come to Christ because they have an expectation of what Christianity is. What we need to do is to meet them with simply the truth of any community and say, this is who Jesus is. For others, the expectation that keeps them from coming to Christ or walking the faith is they can't understand suffering. Now on one level, no one can plumb the depths of suffering that occurs in this life. But there are those, and often it's a believer who, who walks with Christ and then engenders some sort of suffering. And they give up on the faith thinking, I thought following Jesus meant you never suffered. You see, the problem there is that Jesus they have made up in their mind is not the Jesus of Scripture. 
Because the Jesus of Scripture said this, In this world you will have trials and tribulations. The Jesus of the Scripture said, Take up your cross and follow me. Cross is suffering. You see, the problem with many of these expectations is they're not based on any research of Christianity. They are based upon personal biases of what they think ought to be. As one person put it like this, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found lacking. It's that it's never been tried. So to that person who says, I can't follow Jesus because of these reasons, follow the example of Philip and encourage them. Investigate, investigate, explore, come and ask questions and dive into the Word of God. Because Jesus will shatter those expectations. And not only does He shatter them, He goes much further than we could ever imagine. Nathaniel takes a chance. Goes to Jesus. Jesus sees him coming. But look at verse 47. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel's first response is, how do you know me? Jesus, you hit the nail on the head, but how do you know me? But what's curious is what Jesus says. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit? Where does that come from? We get a clue later in the passage in verse 51, Jesus quotes Genesis 28 from the life of Jacob. Remember, Jacob was a deceiver. And his name was changed to Israel. So when Jesus sees Nathanael coming, he says, Behold, an Israelite from Jacob, but you're not like Jacob. There's no deceit in you. Just like Jesus saw through Simon Peter and saw what he was going to do, he sees through Nathanael and he sees something different, something he's going to create. And Nathanael is shocked, so he says, how did you know that? So he says, so Nathanael, so you won't doubt, so you'll know that, that I'm not doing some sort of magician's parlor trick. I saw you sitting underneath a fig tree. And then Nathanael responds, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Now this is nothing less than divine revelation. How in the world do you get Jesus, you're the Messiah, from Jesus saying, I saw you under a fig tree? Unless God is using that moment to open a heart and to say, this is the Messiah. But then, Jesus takes it to the next level. You're amazed because I saw you before you even came to me, Nathaniel. I'm going to do greater things than these. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to take your expectations and I'm going to elevate them exponentially. Jesus says, what I'm going to do, what's going to happen is this, verse 51. Truly I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He quotes Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob is on his way to this land of Haran to find a wife. And as he's traveling, night falls. He can't find a Best Western. He can't find a travel lodge. So he finds a little spot on the road and he gets for him a Serta rock pillow and he puts it under his head. And he kicks back to sleep. When he goes to sleep, he has a dream that night. In this dream, a ladder comes down from heaven. And he sees angels going up the ladder and coming down the ladder. And then he hears God tell him, Jacob, the promises I made to Abraham apply to you too. Jacob, I will be with you. And Jacob wakes up and he says, this is a holy place. This is the gate of heaven. I'll build an altar here. Now Jesus... 
takes those words and applies them to himself. Notice what he says. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's not saying you'll see angels descending and coming and resting upon me. Because guess what? He has already established that Nathaniel is Jacob in this situation. He is the Israelite in whom there is no guile. When Jesus says, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on, Jesus is saying, I'm the latter. I'm the way that the angels will be coming up and down. Now, if we take what happened in Genesis, where in that moment of confusion and trial and anxiety, Jacob is reminded that God is faithful to his promises and be with him. Church, our expectation is this. The promises of God are fulfilled in, through, and by Jesus Christ. We hold to him as the fulfillment. We hold to him as the intercessor. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And if we are to receive the the blessings of God, they come to us through Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. That means that in the moment of life when you are tried, in that moment of life when things are against you, you look to Jesus Christ as God's faithful servant, as the one through whom God will be true to his word. So brother and sister, when you are anxious and you are wondering how are all these things going to work out, you grab the rung that is Jesus Christ where he said, I am with you even unto the ends of the world, and you climb a little higher. When you are fearful because the things of this world are pressing in upon you, you grab the next rung where Jesus said, in this world you will have trials and tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, and you climb a little higher. And when you face death and you wonder, God, why is death happening? You grab the rung where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believeth in me, even if he die, yet shall he live. And you climb a little higher. We don't climb in our own strength. We climb the mountain through the ladder that is Jesus Christ, on one on whom God fulfills his word, church. That's what he gets to. Your expectations are shattered in the face of who Jesus is. So the question is this. Why do we keep trying to meet what we need on our own? You see, there are believers that have been grown up with a good dose of American self-sufficiency. And when it comes to relying on Jesus and praying and bowing in humility, they simply won't do it because they have the idea, what I get, I've got to get on my own. You know what? They're like this lady. This lady I read about. 67-year-old who went in to have cataract surgery. Simple surgery. They're getting ready to give her the anesthesia. And the ophthalmologist goes and he props her eye open and finds this blue mass tucked way back in her eyelid. The ophthalmologist looks at it and it's 27 contact lenses. Yes, exactly. That's how I felt reading it. He said he'd never seen anything like that before. Lady comes to, ma'am, we just got 27 contact lenses. She said, well, I felt a little discomfort. Well, ma'am, when you couldn't find a contact lens, what'd you think? She said, well, I just assumed it fell out and I just put another one in. 27. We do the same thing with God. Lord, I keep working. I can do it. I'm going to put another contact lens in. No matter how bad things are, I can do it. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I don't need the ladder that is Jesus. And you know where you end up eventually? Flat on your face. Because you and I don't have the resources to face this world. And the sooner we realize that, the happier we will be in Jesus. You see, our expectations are set way too low as to who he is. So do you know him today? 
Do you know him in the words of the old song, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.